This episode of I Am Gravity is titled, We is Greater, and we're in habit one, still, play big, stay small. And these podcast episodes of the book are mostly independent of each other, but in this case, it does help a little if you've covered the episode, Feeling Powerful. Moral codes have been a vague, volatile topic for a very long time. The blank slate theory of moral identity is a long-standing tradition that we arrive in the world empty-minded, waiting for society to write morality into our brand new brains. As it turns out, that theory isn't entirely correct. The initial organization of the brain does not depend that much on experience, wrote NYU cognitive scientist Gary Marcus. Nature provides a first draft, which experience then revises. Built in doesn't mean finished. It means organized in advance of experience. Or in the words of Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker, nothing comes out of nothing. And the complexity of the brain has to come from somewhere. It cannot come from the environment alone because the whole point of having a brain is to accomplish certain goals, and the environment has no idea what those goals are. So, curious to uncover the first moral draft of the human mind, if there was one, social psychologist Jonathan Haidt and social scientist Craig Joseph reviewed decades of literature ranging from anthropology to evolutionary psychology, searching for both cross-cultural differences and similarities. Haidt and Joseph found five foundational morals, actually six, Haidt added one later, as the best candidates for what's morally instinctive for every one of us from day one. The first is care, concern and compassion for the harm or care of others, especially those whom we perceive as weak or vulnerable. Two, fairness, reciprocity, and justice. Three, loyalty, self-sacrifice, and patriotism. Four, authority, respect, voluntary deference, and even elements of love. Five, sanctity, virtue derived from controlling what you do with your body and what you put into it. And six, liberty, resistance to oppression and tyrants. So here's a personal story of how the foundational morals come into play, often without thinking twice or even once about it. A few years ago, Dave and I left the office for a non-working, life-shortening lunch of burgers and fries at a locally famous grill. And as we ordered, a couple behind us seemed to be arguing. But it soon became clear that the two-way argument was one-way abuse. The boyfriend was insisting that because of his partner's stupidity and indecisiveness, he would order for her. And the restaurant only has nine small tables, so everyone felt the social uneasiness. Not caring if anyone else heard or not, the man kept the abusive pressure on saying that she should put on some makeup because she looked like crap, and she apologized. As we sat down, the man pressed on with his verbal assault. He slid his car keys across the table at her. She tried to catch them, but missed, and they flew into her chest. 
From only three feet away, I turned and asked the man what the problem was. He said, you know how they are, speaking of women. I told him he shouldn't be talking to her that way. Dave and I both tried to persuade him to adopt any moral to end the verbal abuse. And that didn't come without a risk. What would happen to her later if he got even angrier or felt embarrassed by what we were doing? What would happen to her right now if we escalated the abuse? Then the man went into the bathroom. Dave immediately turned to the woman and asked how we could help, offering advice and an escape. Meanwhile, fearing the possibility of violence and wanting protection for her, I asked the owner to call the police, and she declined, saying it was not her business. So I dialed 911 myself. A few men from another table joined the discussion, warning the woman that her boyfriend was a bad man. Then returning from the bathroom, the boyfriend sat down and picked up the insults right where he left off. So while I talked to the 911 operator, a man from another table walked over and slammed his fist on their table and threatened the boyfriend, complete with some colorful adjectives to make it clear that he was ready to intervene. Everyone else in the restaurant, like the owner, stayed out of it. They looked away. The boyfriend left the restaurant to get something from the car, and I asked the girlfriend if he owned a gun. Yes, and if the gun was in the car. She wasn't sure. I wondered if we were going to leave the restaurant alive. So, still on the phone with 911, I looked out the restaurant's glass door waiting for the boyfriend to come back. Dave continued to talk with the woman, and I wondered if the police would get there before the boyfriend made his way back in. And soon a group of people dressed mostly in black walked toward the door. And I was thinking, is this the police? Is it a SWAT team? Wait, why are they holding cameras? How did the media arrive before the police or even know what was happening? Then John Kionis from ABC News walked through the door, announcing that the whole thing was a setup for ABC's television show, What Would You Do? We were lab rats. The natural gravity of Height's moral code was in play for everyone whose lunch turned into a test. The girlfriend was vulnerable, and we cared about her safety. The boyfriend was a tyrant, stealing her liberty. We tried to protect it. His treatment of her violated fairness. We felt a loyalty to women generally and loved and respected her as a fellow human being. The core six morals are as innate as a fear of spiders, snakes, or heights, yet as individual as your taste for certain foods, even though you have the same five taste receptors as everybody else. Think of the core six morals as a moral palette that everyone starts with, but one that can be socially re-scripted or evolve with your priorities. According to Height, if your political views lean liberal, you value the first two morals to the exclusion of the other four. If you're conservative, you value all six, but you don't prioritize the first two nearly as high as the last four. On either side of the party line, when you demoralize or dilute any of the six morals to justify or push your preferred ones, your moral identity, the surge protector of power, weakens with it. So, 
you may have noticed a running theme in the morality-power relationship by now. Five of the six morals written into human character are we-centric. Keltner's, Galinsky's, and DeSella's research pointed to less me and more we in the effective use of social power, noting that morality has largely fallen off the leadership agenda over the past four decades. Harvard's Jal Mehta and Christopher Winship found that morally powerful leaders move people to change beliefs or act when they put the common good ahead of their own. To Dartmouth undergraduates, New York Times columnist David Brooks said this, The moral world is not structured like the market world. To develop morally, you have to follow an inverse set of rules. You have to give to receive. You have to surrender to something outside yourself to gain strength within yourself. You have to conquer your desire to get what you crave. Success leads to the greatest failure, which is arrogance and pride. Failure can lead to the greatest success, which is humility and learning. In order to fulfill yourself, you have to forget yourself. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. The inverse logic has a lot of logic and biology to conquer we. So let's explore the anatomy of me. Our neural circuitry isn't fully connected until our early to late 20s. Part of that circuitry is the frontal lobe, which helps us get outside ourselves, socially and emotionally. The slow, steady timeline, developmental timeline, explains why nearly everyone is at an early empathy disadvantage. It is physiologically harder to empathize and socially connect at a young age. That's why teenagers are often so me-centric. You think of them as these surly, rude, selfish people, said University of Pennsylvania neurologist Francis Jensen. Well, actually, that's the developmental stage they're at. They aren't yet at that place where they're capable of thinking about the effects of their behavior on other people. That requires insight. But just as we exit our teens into our 20s to arrive with we-centered neurological capability, social and cultural conditions that fuel a me mentality intensify. It's like starting a diet detox and someone takes you to McDonald's for your first meal. Our early 20s serve everyone the meal of me. We more fully claim our independence and focus on who I am, my style, my decisions, my major, my grades, my social life, my persona. Our social circles are confined to mostly people our age who are like us. Dating is more recreational than serious, so there isn't a personal stake in the other person because they aren't a significant other. Jobs during college don't typically involve complex relationships with a wide variety of people and aren't likely to last long or involve what we ultimately want to do in our career, so our demographic comfort zone stays tight. University of Michigan researchers collected decades of studies on empathy among college students. Empathy has been in steady decline for a century. It's strange to think of empathy, a natural human impulse, as fluctuating in this way, moving up and down like consumer confidence, 
wrote NPR journalist Hannah Rosen of Empathy's Recession. But that's what happened. In fact, cutting someone off from your empathy was seen as a positive value, a way to make a stand. By nature, nurture, and necessity, our teens and 20s always come with high doses of me. And because we're absorbed in and surrounded by me, there is a tide of neural me wiring and social me conditioning to overcome as you enter your mid to late 20s. The me first blueprint and me heavy behavior never go unnoticed or unpublicized. As early as 1907, journalists beyond their 20s have been writing front page stories condemning the current 20 somethings for their me first behavior. And although the accusations aren't entirely untrue, the most revealing truth is that we've all been 20 something. The biological and psychological blueprint isn't reserved for only one generation. The byproduct is a me-heavy mentality that takes too long to wear off for any generation's own good, outliving its worth and cornering us into leftover beliefs and behaviors that carry on for years. And the lengthy detox creates a long span of me-centered tendencies that leave each rising and passing generation innocently, ignorantly, or brazenly miscalculating the right ratio of me to we. That's why, on average, your mid-20s begin a pivotal season of life. The first 10 years of your career present crucial, even irretrievable openings to replace me-centered habits with we ones. Age 30 begins a decade to tip the scales in favor of thinking and empathically feeling more we, less me. Committing to one partner, starting a new family, building greater political awareness, achieving heightened social consciousness, and starting careers that connect with a much wider variety of people and purposes. You lead for the first time or have greater influence at work if your title doesn't carry the official tag of leader. And then later, your 40s and 50s bring financial sacrifice for children's college tuition, blended families, civic involvement, and a personal history of lessons to rely on that give us reason to trust or at least live by we over me. And though opportunities to lean on a we mentality increase past our 20s, it's easy to revert to me, myself, and I as a 30, 40, 50-something. The pressure of mortgages to pay, jobs to compete for, campaigns to run, retirement to plan, performance to sustain, and public recognition of our success that comes with age keep a me mentality in play. Certain image expectations also come with age. Social pressures and perceptions, a friend reminded me, make driving a rusty Honda Civic okay as a 20-something college student, but not as a 30-something manager. If not managed wisely, appearances and material accumulation fuel a me mentality and make us feel powerful. Because the social reinforcements of me are always there to distract us from a we way of living and working, the long learning curve sets up standards and habits for the way people behave organizationally and economically. 
USC's Dave Logan found that 76% of company cultures are me-centered. The more me that saturates the culture, the worse the company's financial performance. The lopsided corporate me-to-we ratio spreads to economies and countries. On June 12, 2009, Bill Moyers interviewed former Clinton Administration Secretary of Labor Robert Reich about health care and the state of the economy. Moyers asks, what has happened to capitalism that has led it to the abyss? And Reich responds, essentially, capitalism has swamped democracy. You see, there's no such thing really as pure capitalism without rules and regulations that set limits on profit making, because otherwise, it's everybody out for themselves. Otherwise, nobody can trust anybody. Otherwise, it's the law of the jungle. Unless you have a democratic system that allows the rules to be created not by the companies, but by the people and the people's representatives reflecting what the public needs, not what the corporations need, you're going to have a system that is not a democracy. And it's not democratic capitalism. It's super capitalism without the democracy. So. Why does society tend to work in opposition to we if it's a superior strategy? Why don't we make stronger moves to get past me sooner once the frontal lobe is firing on all neurons and axons? Because me is a durable way to survive. Politics and business are competitive and capitalistic. Head to head, a me strategy appears the strongest one, and that belief is almost always wrong. Social science and history expose me as a less steady way to survive and a fragile way to thrive. And yet, despite the case for living by a we value system, most of us still have deep-seated anxiety about how we actually works. Because a me strategy feels instinctive and in my control, there is a fear of conceding control, missing out, or being vulnerable that makes us uneasy about switching to we. The fear arises because a me mentality appears to be the straightest, safest, fastest line to success. And in truth, that line is twisted, hazardous, and slow. And just even a little science on we mentality can straighten it out. New York University professor Evan Pullman and Kyle Emich of Cornell posed the following challenge to 137 undergrads. A prisoner was attempting to escape from a tower. He found a rope in his cell that was half as long enough to permit him to reach the ground safely. He split the rope in half, tied the two parts together, and escaped. How could he have done this? Half the students were asked to imagine themselves as the prisoner locked inside the tower, who they called the prisoner group. The other half were asked to imagine someone else trapped in the prison, the imaginary group. 48% of those who imagined themselves trapped in the tower escaped. 68% of those who imagined someone else solved the dilemma? And the answer is the prisoner unwound the rope and then tied the strands together. 
three more related experiments in that same study found participants were more creative or had better solutions when thinking of someone else, and the only variable was the switch from me to we. Everyone lives by varying degrees of me and we. Feeling powerful, even slightly, as we covered in the previous chapter, shifts your mentality from we to me. And that switch weakens your moral intensity and jams empathy's transmission. So, at least for the sake of creativity and just being smarter, let's switch. Let's switch.